hakika wema nazo fadhili hakika wema nazo Welcome to Movable Dough. This is Steve Danielson. Each week, I get to sit down with a living composer and talk about their lives, their musical journeys, and of course, their music. Join me and take a peek inside the mind of a composer. For a complete archive of episodes, as well as access to the shorter segments called Movable Snippets, visit my website, sdcompose.com slash movabledough. Hey, this is Steve. Thanks for joining me for this episode of Movable Dough. My guest today is Brian Black II. A native of Akron, Ohio, Brian received his BM in music education from Ashland University and his MM in choral conducting from Kent State University. He's currently pursuing a Doctor of Musical Arts degree in choral conducting at the University of South Carolina. Brian's compositions have been performed by ensembles at Kent State University, Slippery Rock University, and the University of Lincoln, Nebraska. Brian has served on the Ohio Choral Directors Association Board as the chair of the Standing Committee for Diversity. Brian Black, welcome to Movable Dough. Steve, thanks so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. I'm a fan of the podcast and the exposure to some different composers, some of which I um, had not been previously familiar with. So I'm honored to be here. Oh, well, thank you. So, like Andrew Maxfield that I interviewed earlier this season, you and I first connected when I featured your piece Forward, a rousing gospel piece, as a movable snippet segment. So you've also written many settings of spirituals as well as other sacred music. So let's start there. Could you talk about the influence of your faith on your compositional style? Yeah, definitely. So uh, faith has played a very significant um, very significant portion of influence in, in my life, so I grew up um, Church of God in Christ, or you know, one of many denominations of of what people would think of in Black church. But um, what's interesting is I is that translated into my musical experience. You know, I I was getting both the classroom musical training of you know what we would consider as a traditional Western uh, music education with music theory and chorus participation and learning to read sheet music, and then throughout church, you know, a lot of Black church traditions derive from oral learning traditions. So I was getting that kind of both ways in my uh, between school and church. And so a lot of the influences I was getting as far as uh, faith goes were translating into uh, into my music. So a lot of the faith messages were always some source of encouragement or hope or uh, looking forward to some, looking forward into just some sort of positivity, something to kind of stir your spirit towards a better way of living or or hoping for things to be better or that they will be better and wanting to instill that not just for yourself, but towards others. And I, that's been really a cornerstone for me of not just a way of living, but also something to translate into my music. A lot of the things that I write, um, even if they're not 100% inherently sacred, they all, I always try to come from the perspective of how can this make the listener or the performer better? How can this encourage them in some kind of way? How can this instill some sort of hope in them to um, just to kind of help navigate away from whatever ensuing chaos may be surrounding us <laughs> in everyday life, which uh, can cover a multitude of things. So that's that became a huge um, 
inspiration cortisone for me it may sometimes uh sound a little bit vague of yes i want something uplifting right but uh it's such an important portion of humanity i think for us of and we use music as such an escape or an expression in everyday life no matter um what you're using as your medium to do so or what genre or text or whatever you may be looking at so um using i i would tell a lot of my choral ensembles frequently you know we we as singers have the opportunity to use our words um to be able to communicate and express so i always look at that as in any of my writing an opportunity to okay how can this express some kind of encouragement or hope in whatever way we're able to do it sure that sounds awesome so you were exposed to music at a young age. Were you composing music also at a young age, or is this something you came into later as your education increased? Yeah, you know, I that for, I further deeper into that as my education increased, but I can remember even in like high school, especially maybe a little in middle school, like really starting to dabble into writing and arranging a little bit. I um <laughs> I had a while preparing for the interview today a memory of uh, when I was in middle school. Um, writing an arrangement of a VeggieTales silly song on the <laughs> piano, <laughs> which is obviously not original, but um, um, yeah, I think I, I arranged like the, I, I want to say it was a version of his cheeseburger. Um, oh, great song. <laughs> yeah, which, and I think if I remember right, there was some kind of uh, composing competition going on that I submitted that for. And it was just, I guess it was just original enough to win some placement in that. And it was something I did like on, like just sitting down, listening on piano, like drawing, like hearing what the original tune was and playing it out and then putting my own words and arrangement and spin to it. Um, and even, I mean, that's such a, a weird, goofy story and I'll never let that song see the light of day now. <laughs> um, <laughs> something about that spurned like an interest in like taking uh, and making some arrangements and like writing and creating my own thing. And as I got into high school, um, I attended a performing arts high school in Akron, uh, Firestone High School. And it was a very, I got a very, very good education there. Like any, anyone in that program who was pursuing uh, music or visual art or dance or theater, um, you got a very good intensive training and upbringing from, from excellent educational profession, professionals in those areas. And I had a music theory teacher who, um, who would just give me some extra guidance in his spare time on composing and things like that. And would literally let me come into his classroom on those very old Macintosh computers when the first couple in installations of Sibelius was on his machines huh. and just let me kind of experiment with those. And at the same time, I was getting, I was very involved in the choirs there. Um, I was in, I think I was in four out of the six choirs over the course of my time there. Oh. And so I was starting to get influence from different genres, especially the anything 20th century to 21st, I was very, very influenced by. Mm. Um, and between that and like the music theory background, I was getting in part writing and dictation and things like that. Like I was really starting to get further into the writing process and taking what I was hearing from the oral tradition and now learning how to physically write it down in, uh, in sheet music and things like that. So that like over the course of high school, I did a lot of like experimental writing in, uh, in learning different things. And added to that, I was also very, very in by take six um oh. my father was is a huge jazz fan and he has an excellent ear um and that in and that also kind of transferred a little bit into some of my influences so a lot of like the 
uh, jazzy, like nine chords and like crunched chromatic um, writing that they'll use that you'll hear in some of their voices like that. And I was influenced both by like the sounds that they were creating with just their own voices and with how they were like preparing to write some of that stuff and how it was a blending. I was just like incredibly fascinated. Like these are sounds that people are making just with their human bodies. Like, what is this? It was, sure. um, it was so fascinating. So I pairing like a lot of that together. Like I was just like th throwing a lot of things at the wall in my own writing of, you know, what was possible. Um, and by, by the end of high school, getting into college and continuing a lot of that, like, I'm pretty sure I wrote a lot of stuff that, some of it may not be as singable, but a good amount of it was um, at least like taught me a lot of like how to like how to write and what is what, what different vocal ranges are, all of those things that you uh, that you need to know. Um, and somewhere in, in there, I got I also started getting very into transcribing, um, especially of when I was when I was getting into vocal jazz types of works and things like that, of just like taking learning how to take what I would hear putting it on paper, looking for how to listen to different voices and different timbres and things like that, um, keying in on voice crossings and um, why certain chords would make sense within the diatonicism of that area. So sure. a lot of that like started really piecing together how to write and then eventually, you know, the deeper my education through undergrad got, it got me a little closer towards what I would want to write and how to construct it together in a sensible way. Sure. Were there any particular composers that you were looking at as you were beginning your process saying, you know, I want to figure out what they're doing? You know, who is inspiring you? Yeah, I was introduced to Moses Hogan very early on in high school. Uh -huh. uh, we would do at least one piece by him every year, <laughs> which, you know, I was in high school in the mid 2000s. So like that was like, I think he would have just passed away mm -hmm. by the time I was probably going into high school. So, but his works were very, very prominent at the time. And, you know, every, that was when uh, everyone was really exposed to uh, his works and he was very much leading the charge on concert spiritual arrangements. Um, so he was, he was very much my introduction to that. And so pairing that with the uh, faith influence that was uh, such a prominent message, a lot of prominent messages within his works and the style he had like a lot of his arrangements they would have like a canonic system in the lower voices of some repetitive um rhythmic figure like josh for the battle of jericho for example you have the tenors yeah. and basses and far between just for the battle yes the battle of jericho. like that's going on while you have the treble voices doing triadic harmonies over it um you would always have some kind of wailing death can on top right towards the end building <laughs> towards like this huge like four or five chord towards the end before it finally resolves towards some big sports, a piano ending, you know? Um, so I was very influenced by that. And then over the course of years of more education, I got that led me towards not just kind of that writing style, but then going back towards the source material for spirituals on uh, more like of what, uh, where a lot of those would come from. Like, okay, this one comes from, this was probably a field holler, or this was probably featured in, the some of the beginnings of the Pentecostal church once African-Americans started forming some of their own traditions mm. as they started putting some of their own services together. Or this was in um, one of the first Baptist hymnals and then it further transferred along the line. So things like that, like were a huge influence. Um, uh, Eric Whitaker was also towards the top of his game around the time I was in, in high school. Um, and for, for me, a lot of th that influence on, 
was just a lot of like him, like as he would stack all of those different cluster chords in high school, of course, like that was, that was fascinating. No matter, you know, what you were, what you were singing of just hearing this like huge wash of sound uh, with notes layered on top of notes. So um, somewhere like, I'm pretty sure somewhere in like within mid high school, I was experimenting with doing that same sort of thing, like in just saying like, okay, how much in Davisi can you really get away with <laughs> and, still blend, and still blend all of it and have it and approach it like so that, you know, it, it's, it's legible and every and hearable and everything makes sense. Right. Um, yeah. So a lot, a lot of their stuff was very, very prominent. Um, and then, and then even for going further back, like I got also very into, um, I think I got very into Brahms a little bit, as like, especially as I got into my master's as mm-hmm. well. Um, I had a master's professor at Kent State, uh, Dr. Scott McPherson, that was a, a gigantic Brahms fan. And that got me a little bit into um, uh, some of the, the writing that he would put like in his Requiem or some of his motets. Um, Handel also, I got, I'm very, I was very, very huge, still am very huge into Baroque music and his Messiah is like one of my all time favorite, 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 favorite things. Um, I'm super fascinated by how quickly he put that whole thing together, <laughs> uh, which was the way for composers then. Like that was their living. They were their course, the course masters and uh, had to have something prepared every single week, whether it was a cantata or a new motet or whatever the case was. Um, so yeah, the writing style of the different uh, melismatic passages and different contrapuntal things, things that would, uh, that paired the uh, text to the uh, different writing styles and things that you that you saw was just fascinating to me, and I can say the same thing about J.S. Bach too, with uh, just how uh, in, a lot of the vocal styles that were very, very much like the, you're hearing like instrumental passages that you would hear for a woodwind instrument, but now in a treble voice, mm-hmm. and, it, and it goes on and just continues cascading for multiple measures at a time. You have no idea where to breathe, but it's <laughs> the way that it's continuing and it's going systematically, like. Um, so I haven't, I mean, I, I would, every once in a while, I would find like an area to put in one of my uh, pieces of writing, even if it was like a short fugue or something like that, that would still be uh, singable, but make context, make sense contextually within a phrase that I might be uh, writing, not just an idea to throw it in just to do it, but something that would elevate whatever the, the text is. And I think that's something that those composers kind of exposed me to as well was, um, not just using a compositional device because you think it's interesting, which was pro- probably what I spent the first six to eight years doing because I was young and it was fun, right? right. But doing finding compositional devices that will elevate the message and then starting from, starting from that point, like as soon as you're, I'm starting from a blank slate of sheet music, okay, what is it that I want this piece to say? And then taking it from there. Sure. So when was that point that you decided that you wanted to pursue music as a career? Probably in high school. I was very influenced by my educators in high school. Um, and I just, they gave me such an outstanding educational experience in music. Growing up in the city of Akron, we're surrounded by a lot of different musical opportunities and um, places to pursue and to uh, live through art. Um, set between the, we have the Akron Symphony Orchestra that's performing multiple um, prominent works of art and bringing in guest artists consistently. Uh, we've Gazetta Hall, we have um, 
They have just all these different venues throughout even different high schools in some of their areas, uh, Civic Akron Civic Theater, all these places that are like prominently like giving you like uh, the most excellent version of art. And so we were able in high school through the choral program alone, able to either perform in some of these spaces or visit different concert venues or go or travel up to Cleveland Playoff Square or uh, or even take different tours to different, you know, ACDA conferences and to perform or to uh, or things like that. So we had like such an incredible exposure and even in just the performing venues that we had during high school. And I was so blown away by the education I got that I was like, okay, I want to provide this for, uh, for others. So I went right away into my um, music education degree at Ashland and then continued to get a very good education there. Um, the state of Ohio is such um, it, they're very, very much uh, sticklers is the word that I'll use for giving, making sure that Ohio's educators are held to very, very high standards. And as grueling as that process was, you know, <laughs> that it, uh, it definitely shapes a lot of the, just the tools that I can use as an educator. And I ended up um, once I went on to my master's at Kent state, that's where I really started to find a home for wanting to pursue higher education as, as an avenue to really start to work with um, singers at a slightly more advanced level. And during that time as a grad assistant, like I, one of my main assignments was teaching the men's course uh, formerly at that, at that time, we later went on with those, with our men's and women's course to have those groups be non-gender exclusive. And now they're named uh, Coral Cantare and Contique for the TB and essay groups respectively. And working with that group, I mean, it's music majors and minors, predominantly minors in the TB group. So, so you have, you know, people who have a, students who have a, a choral background from, well, probably from high school, some who may just be singing in a chorus for the first time at that kind of level and things like that. And then a few music majors who have pursued this a little more actively. And it was a great space for me to be able to learn how to bring people from multiple different vocal experiences and backgrounds to a level playing field so you have mm -hmm. like you know the mix of largely amateurs but there's but still at that interest level to where they really want to pursue this because they want to they're you know you're in college it's an elective no one's you know it, it's not a requirement for you unless you're a music major but it gives you the opportunity to be able to enhance their education by trying a variety of different things and so that really became kind of a, a musical playground of sorts for me both in from an educational perspective as a graduate assistant, get, building my skills. And also um, I was able to use some of my compositions every once in a while or throwing an arrangement together for something that we were performing um, to just to be able to fur further that along and try some different things. And even that became an education in itself for, okay, this writing this would work. Okay, no, they can't really sing that. Okay, maybe, maybe we need to change that interval. Or no, they really, that that's right at the peak of their <laughs> tessitura. Like that's, they can't sing that well in their head voice on that vowel. We need to change it to a different word. That, that high up is not going to happen, you know? So all, all those sorts of things uh, were really keen to play. And it just further kind of um, gave me some very good exposure to what I was really interested in doing as an educator um, and so the more I did that and was able to work with uh, our different mixed groups and uh, work on some different genres, like it started um, just checking different boxes on what I really wanted to do and um, even filling in more of those. I want to inspire and find ways to uplift others using this as a medium. Sure. 
So speaking of music education, I teach middle school choir right now, and I asked some of my sixth graders what they would ask a composer if they had a chance. Would you mind answering one of their questions right now? Yeah, absolutely. All right. So Ilea asks, out of everything you could have done in life, why did you choose music? Ooh, that is a very good question. Um, wow. I would say I chose music because I know it's where I belong. I think if I was doing anything else, I would be, I, I might be okay, but I would know that something is missing. You know, sometimes we, you know, no matter who you are and what age you are, you you spend a good amount of your time, like trying to find what you're good at or what you're really passionate about. And music was one of those things that just helped me to connect to what that is and not just doing, not just doing music, but um, being able to do it with other people and um, being able to learn that I have different skills in it. Um, I think it's, it's one thing, especially in being able to do music that I've been able to learn is that it, um, I'm not just fixed within one area or one box, like, okay, I'm good at singing great. And that, that's it. Or I'm okay. I'm good at writing and that's, that's kind of it. So I'm just going to do that and throw everything I have into writing and I'll be fine. But being able to learn like, okay, I can, I also really enjoy uh, conducting. I enjoy collaborating with um, working with people on their solos. I enjoy um, being able to help encourage somebody on them on how good a job that they were doing in singing something or, or collaborating with an instrumentalist or all these, all these kind of different areas. Um, so it's, it's, it's interesting how, when you find one thing that you really enjoy doing, you start to broaden how much you're able to do and enjoy in it. And I think if I was not within that music realm, I would, I would, like I said, I would just, there, there would be a, a gaping hole right there. And I would always be kind of chasing back towards it. So I'd say any, I mean, anybody that, um, is kind of trying to figure out like, you know, should I maybe lean into this? Maybe should I not like just try going, you know, a couple weeks without it. And, and if you're really, really finding that you're missing it, like you'll find your way back to it. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. All right. Well, I will make sure Ilea hears that answer because that was awesome. All right. I got one more question for you before we take a quick break. So I know firsthand the crazy schedule of a DMA student. I just finished my DMA a couple of years ago. Uh, so when you are not doing DMA stuff, what do you do to relax? What sort of hobbies do you have outside of the DMA craziness? Yeah, that it's, it gets a little tricky at times to um, figure out what that is. But honestly, I um, I'm very big on family. Um, I'm the oldest of four, um, and so with, and then with my parents at six, and now I'm preparing to get married in a, um, in just a few months, and so that'll expand the family. So um, I try to find just some free time to just check in with them, to hang out, or to call them on the phone, or to. Um, just kind of relax with them a little bit. I was, I've always been extremely close to my family growing up. Um, and thankfully my fiance, like we're both uh, very similar in that regard. So, um, you know, her, her and I both like, will you know, right now, like we'll either be going on dates or, uh, right now, since we're, um, still living in, in separate States leading up to the wedding, we'll, you know, do a FaceTime date and just chat in or, or talk or watch a movie virtually on zoom. <laughs> um, you know, at Emily and Prime or something like that. Um, I'm also, I'm still right now getting to know the city of Columbia. So every, you know, once in a while when I'm able to, like I'll try to get to know like a new, you know, restaurant or something like that that someone will recommend. 
um, and just get to know, you know, just, just kind of get, get to know the area a little bit and things like that. So it just to try to take those moments to just unwind and not have my brain on, you know, <laughs> wiring on, you know, something music related. Fantastic. All right. Well, we're going to take a quick break here. And when we come back, we'll have a chance to listen to some of Brian's compositions. Welcome back. I'm talking today with Brian Black. So let's start today with Brotherhood for TTBB. This piece echoes an idea that's commonly found in men's chorus pieces, that we are brothers united in song. But I read that you were thinking sort of on a larger scale than just the men singing together. Can you tell us what you were aiming for with this piece? Yeah, so I, um, I was still working with the Kent State University men's chorus at the time. And we had been, we had, uh, before I started directing, they were using um, the uh, Brothers Sing On by Edward Grieg as a signature tune a little bit. And, you know, I was very familiar with that piece and all that kind of stuff. And I was kind of looking to reshift and write something different that was a signature tune that could be specifically for us, like about our group. And so I wrote um, something that they've continued to use now called Brothers Sing or Brothers in Song, just like a very quick one minute signature tune that amplify some of the same ideas in this piece but it says specifically you know we are the kent uh, the kent state men's chorus uh we um brothers in song sing on like it talks about their colors blue and gold and the unity and things like uh -huh. that and so usually with our concerts we would process up on stage and marching sing that piece and then go right into another song in b flat and so i wrote this one to also for their group to go to follow behind that signature tune because they were both in the same key and I wanted to really broaden that idea of brotherhood because we'd made it such a core part of our group's atmosphere and environment and how we treat each other, you know, mm -hmm. like many men's courses do. Like, that's why a lot of guys like, you know, or a lot of people really enjoy these TV groups and that dynamic. And so I turned to um, the texts that are in it. It's a combination of um, Psalm 133 and Romans 12 that both talk about mm -hmm. unity of mankind pretty much. And um, I really wanted to just highlight that notion of, you know, people collectively working towards something meaningful because, you know, we would talk all the time in that group about, you know, what does ensemble mean? That people working together, you know? And so these texts I felt really kind of reflected on like the unity and the faith and the brotherhood of mankind, you know, we're brothers united in song, you know, it, and how wonderful would it be if all people lived together in harmony? So I wanted to really kind of use that sounding like you know with the rousing like men's chorus kind of feel behind it that could be kind of catered more specifically to this group and i kind of lucked out the semester that we did this uh, we had that was the year where we had one, our group was on the larger side um we had like i think nearly 40 members that semester, and there were strong singers in all four sections so it really really worked out because i think this is a piece that really benefits from having a fuller chorus mm -hmm. um there's a little bit of Davisi amongst a couple of the parts and some of the larger cadences at times. But um, so like right off the bat, like it comes in with this big behold um, to get really, really resonate that I'd heard in like some other mid to late 20th century <laughs> um, uh, choruses where they have this big behold on some big, like large triad uh -huh. or octave or, or whatever would be going on. Um and then it just continues kind of cascading with that from both the beginning and, um, and the end, just to add some excitement. Um, 
And I'll also throw in, this is probably around the time when I thought I really started getting good at writing piano accompaniments. Uh-huh. <laughs> it, um, that took a little while of some trial and error. Um, Cause I started writing um, as long as I've known like how to write for choruses and thinking about things in, in either those triads or in like kind of like fixed ranges. Um, I would start writing the, like a lot of piano accompaniments, thinking about this full instrumentation of like all these voices cascading through treble and through bass and thinking about it in um, kind of vertical block formations of like dot, 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 chord, 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 instead of kind of letting the, like using the full range of the instrument um, and having it go, you know, um, doing some different arpeggiations and only a a few notes per subdivision instead of block, 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 block. So here's where I think this, I started kind of getting a little bit better of a grip on it. And I had an accompanist at the time that uh, was just able to make that accompaniment like sing (laughs) through to support those voices. All right. Well, we're going to take just a moment here and we're going to listen to Brotherhood performed here by the Kent State University Men's Chorus.
All right, let's go next to On Christmas Night. This is a seven-movement cantata for chorus and orchestra. Can you talk to us about writing this piece in general and perhaps something about the titular movement that we're about to listen to? Yeah, so this was one of the um, coolest things I think I've ever worked on. I was um, the director of music at Talmadge Lutheran Church, um, township within Akron, Ohio. And every year, like many churches, we would do a December Christmas cantata service or lessons and carols. And at the time, I had just finished my master's and I wanted to write the cantata. And I had some arrangements of different Christmas carols and hymns at the time. And I wanted to try to put some of those together in one work and add some more things to it. So I spent that summer doing just that. And I put some things within the chorus and spent some time with each carol and witch hymn and said, okay, which ones do I want to really highlight? How can I theme some of these together? And what scriptures can we put in between that will make these make kind of cohesive sense? Um, and just use the different familiar carols that everyone would really get behind. But I wanted to approach each one with uh, how can I make these stand out is interesting because everyone's heard a million different arrangements of joy to the world and silent night and a holy night and things like that. So it was really fun um, trying at times, but it was really fun to be able to find different creative avenues for each one. Um, we had different instrumentalists in the church and even in the Kent state community that I was able to call on. So the instrumentation was a little interesting just from writing for what I knew I had, sure. but um, I think the, so the, on Christmas night was the opening piece for this whole set. And then I ended up titling the whole work behind it. And truly, this is one of the things I think I'm the most proud of writing um, this piece in particular. Um, I think on Christmas night, no holy night that follows um, were probably the things I really, really enjoyed writing the most because of the amount of challenge it provided. So on Christmas night, um, the whole orchestration, there's uh, um, there were, I believe it was flute, clarinet, um, I have two horn, two horn players. So like one, uh, one F horn and one, uh, I think, no, it was two, a couple of trumpets and then the piano, five part strings. And, uh, let's see. Yeah, I believe that that was it. And so, oh, and then a bass, bass trombone. That was the other one. And so putting, putting all those together and trying to balance them was quite a project, but, um, thankfully we had the forces in the chorus to pull it off. So the recording, uh, is actually the second time we premiered it. And I combined the church choir and the, uh, the choir that I began, uh, the harvest choir, which is a collaborative of several musician friends from all over multiple communities of mine between, uh, the church and Kent, some Kent state students and grads and, um, some other friends of mine from the Akron community and family members. And this arrangement in particular, like I started it off with this very um, bombastic opening that I really wanted it to feel like Christmas and like the, the rush and excitement and the flurry of, oh man, okay, it's the, it's the day after Christmas. We're starting the holiday season. There's excitement, there's craziness, <laughs> there's insanity, but we're going to celebrate the fact that it's Christmas night. Um, so starting off with that first verse, um, once the chorus comes in in unison with the on Christmas night, all Christians sing to hear the news the angels bring. Starting in that like kind of moving, lilting six, eight to give it that kind of buoyancy uh, just to keep it as kind of this dancing figure. Um, I ended up splitting it into um, 
four, I used four verses. I believe it's all four of them and gave each one of them some different distinct characters and instrumentation behind it. So the opening uh, after um, the symphonic opening that occurs, the first verse is just features the chorus prominently with just the piano and strings underneath it. The um, second verse, the then why should men on earth be so sad? Just the tenors and basses uh, with the brass accompanying them with just that four-part brass quartet, uh, just to give them some oomph. And then the sopranos and alto sing the third verse, the when sin departs before his grace with the uh, um, strings and the woodwinds doing a bit of a duet with them. And that's in a key change. I'm a huge sucker for key changes. <laughs> I, I, um, there's not too many of my works that just stay in the same key. And friends of mine that have uh, performed a handful of my pieces with me. Like every time I tell them, all right, hey, I've got a new piece. They're like, oh, there's a key change, isn't there? <laughs> <laughs> it's almost always the first question. Um, but then this one uh, goes, and then this one goes back, <laughs> back into the original key of G major for this Alargando broadened, out of darkness, we have light to like really draw it out until the big glory to God and peace to men. Um, with an amen at the end. Um, when I re-performed this work at our, um, with the Harvest Choir, I did just three of the set out of this cantata and ended it with um, On Christmas Night, since it has the amen and has this big trump, this big bombastic triumphant feel towards it. And I think it could truly go anywhere within any set if someone was doing the full work or if it was closing a concert or a set or anything like that. Um, and I think that, it, it, this could easily be performed whether it was with the orchestration or even just SATB and piano, or if you wanted to utilize um, the, the woodwinds or something within it, like it could easily be adaptable to anyone wanting to use it. And the lines are just singable enough, I think, for whether it was your uh, someone's church choir or um, community chorus or high school choir, even depending on what forces you have to go with you and uh, I'm a huge, huge Christmas person. And so every year, like this is definitely one in just my personal listening that I go back to. Um, and I was very proud of the recording that, um, that, that came out with this one. Um, and this is, I have the recording of this also available on um, Apple and Spotify from our Beneficium album with, with this recording. So anyone that wants to perform this, like I, I would highly recommend it. It's, like, it's, it's a good time. All right. Well, we're going to go ahead and listen to On Christmas Night performed here by the Harvest Choir and Talmadge Lutheran Church Chancel Choir.
Okay, let's turn next to Magnificasti Me Mirabilia for soprano solo and mixed chorus. Do you write a piece like this with a particular choir and soloist in mind, or do you write generally and then try to find a choir that can do it? So this one, the story is very interesting because I wrote this in college and it was not performed until nine years later uh-huh. on another Harvest Choir project. And when I wrote this, I don't think I had anyone in mind. I think I was at this time, I was very, very influenced by my collegiate chorus experience by that point. And we had done works by like Clausen and um, a couple by Whitaker and all those types of things. So the a lot of the especially latter third of the 20th century choral works that um, just had sort of a free flowing sort of sensation throughout them. Mm-hmm. Um, like this, there were just different ideas of sounds throughout the piece, um, the acapella works especially. And something about that just really drew me in at the time. And so I remember just sitting down one summer, just kind of writing this out. And I really wanted to try to do something in Latin that took um, a scriptural text and just melded some ideas around it. And so I, you know, looked up the Latin Vulgate scriptures and just picked this verse because I thought the text would sound beautiful within a choral context uh, Mm -hmm. uh, while being sung. And I've ended up like really loving this piece after kind of rediscovering it years later. So that it's based on, um, one of my favorite scriptures, um, Psalm 139, 14, I will praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works and that my soul knows it very well. And one of the biggest things that reminds me of is just the um, beauty in each person in how we're all made and who we all are. Um, it's just a good reminder for me that like every single person, like, you know, you're here for a reason and you are excellent beautiful the way that you are and you should never Mm. doubt anything in yourself you should never feel less than you should never feel um negatively on who you are or why you are the who you are um you should take delight in in the fact that you are here for a reason and you deserve love and kindness and so when i i was doing the um one of our harvest choir projects a concert retitled uh walking in purpose this is one of the pieces I kind of themed it around it. I wanted to do another work of mine and I remembered this one and that it wasn't performed and it fit in the theme really, really well. And so I had the course work on that. We uh, literally put that together in just three weeks in prepping for the performance. Um, the soprano solo was performed by one of my former students, uh, Jenna Wolf, who was just an excellent um, soprano who had like the perfect sound and tone and timbre up there for what I, beyond even what I envisioned as a young undergrad student. Um, and she was also majoring in, uh, in a choral music education and has since gone on to, um, to teach chorus and things like that. And has an excellent understanding and, and mastery of the voice. And so the, I remember, I'm pretty sure that, that the, the middle section of the piece where the voices come in at their very soft building, memorabilia, until they hold um, a major seven F sharp chord. And then the soloist comes in. There's a section within Clausen's All That Hath Life and Breath, Praise Ye the Lord, that I think I'd sung in college, where the voices, before they go into kind of this aleatoric section of chanting, 
um, the title text. They are, they all sustain a pitch and change on different chords one by one mm-hmm. as a solos comes in. So I, I had some influence of that, but of course, you know, in recreating my own thing, um, just held that chorus moment there as they all build for a little bit and just had the soloist sing through that text on you're beautifully and wonderfully made before the chorus then canonically builds up towards that last huge opera tua et anima mea or the um, my soul knows it very well, marvelous are your works. Mm. So there's a lot in there that I use kind of draw out of between some of the voice crossing that's used throughout um, the beginning and ending, especially and finding different ways for the individual vocal lines to have kind of their own uh, moments, such as repeating in the first couple sections, the terribiliter, terribiliter, um, before building up to the large magnificasti uh, of really fun, fine ways in that land to draw out um, the fearfully, wonderfully, and what some of those different parts of the text were to build really towards and away from uh, that solo. And so it really draws out a lot of, I feel it, you know, it, was, it really draws out a lot of what that beauty is. And even some of the the minor chords that it digs into around the, um, before the solo comes in and some of the tension of the weight um, before the solo, it kind of builds in a little bit of that tension of that question we have of, am I wonderfully made? Like, a- am I really? Like, who am I? You know, some of those inner dialogue questions that we kind of have with ourselves. Um, before the final resolve towards the very end, after some of the larger um, forces of the piece, um, when they come back into the fortissimo, it's almost like this re- gentle return uh, once they get towards their, the last two measures of Novit Nimis. Um, I wanted to give it kind of a peaceful resolve. It's probably the best way that I can say it of, okay, I accept this. It's kind of like an amen without saying sure. amen. You know, so yeah, I really enjoyed being able to um, premiere this piece for this concert. And uh, since then, this piece has uh, just recently been uh, picked up by the William Jewell College in Kansas City um, with um, conductor Anthony Maglione. They performed it a few months ago in November, and I've since learned that they'll be taking it on their May tour to England and Scotland, which I'm very, very excited about. That'll be the First time, to my knowledge, that one of my pieces will be performed internationally, uh, which <laughs> awesome. is very, very, very exciting news. All right. Well, we're going to listen to Magnificasti Me Mirabilia, performed here by the Harvest Choir.
we're going to end today by talking about Hold On Just a Little While Longer. So this is a spiritual that you arranged for alto solo and mixed chorus. When you sit down to arrange a spiritual, do you study other settings of the same spiritual or do you try to sit down with a clean slate, so to speak? A little bit of both. So especially as the the kind of the rise in the last couple of years of of choral directors wanting to perform spirituals, but wanting to make even more of an effort now within multiple DEI initiatives to want to do them right and to do them justice and to not appropriate. You know, people always now, especially they're like, okay, how can we do this uh, and give the piece justice within this realm, this genre correctly, quote unquote. And I had a very similar mindset when I sat down to write this piece, um, approaching okay, what is the source material? Where did this piece really derive from? Mm -hmm. But of course, I also was very influenced by other spiritual arrangements uh, in concert choral settings that I'd come up with. You know, I was very influenced by, you know, the Moses Hogan arrangements, of course, uh, William Dawson, uh, and so forth, Jester Hairston. And so even though I was, I wanted to do and kind of honor some of what they had left, um, I also knew I wanted to do something different with this one. So hold on just a little while longer. Really, the, it's, this derives from a field holler, which during slavery was literally just the slaves would um, just kind of cry out and it would be either just their groanings on, their, on how they felt in that moment or it could have been them communicating to someone else um, how they felt or something that was going on or checking on each other while they were, uh, while they were working or, or a plan for escape. And so this one, you only have just the opening line in the piece, just the hold on just a little while longer, everything will be all right. And that's, that's all you have. And so that's not a ton of ton to base an entire piece on, (laughs) but you know, I knew I wanted to kind of take that and build some more into it um, while honoring what was going on. So when I wrote this piece, I was uh, collaborating with my good friend, uh, Darrell LeGrere, who is an, an excellent, excellent composer and arranger from Akron, Ohio. I've known him for years. He has tons and tons and tons of very uh, complex arrangements of sacred works and spirituals. And, you know, we both kind of grew up listening to those types of pieces and take six and jazz and all, and all those kinds of things. And his arrangements are usually very dense. He, he uses a lot of canonic material uh, and multiple Davisi, and it takes a lot of work and concentration to navigate one's own part while he has 19 other voice parts doing something. <laughs> but he, he approached me and wanted to do a concert of our arrangements of spirituals. Um, and so he did it in the fall of 2018. And it was kind of like a lecture recital, if you will, of us presenting our fresh arrangements of renditions of different spirituals and kind of educating the audience on where they came from and what we wanted to say with Mm. them and things like that. And the chorus we put together with those was a group of just all African-American friends and family members who were all incredible choristers that we had known for um, a long time. And so this one, um, the soloist in the recording I used for that one was, uh, her name is uh, Jennifer Jones. She's a very uh, renowned um, recording artist and musician in Akron. Um, she formerly, until just a few years ago, was the chorus conductor for the annual Gospel Meets Symphony concert in Akron with the with Akron Symphony Orchestra and Chorus. And uh, she's a worship leader with her son, Josh, at 
uh, Mount Calvary Baptist Church in Akron. They run an incredible worship program there. And she is, uh, I knew that she would, for lack of a better way to say it, understand the assignment with this solo. Um, she, I knew I needed someone that could just carry the, the character for the kind of the opening wail in this solo. It opens up with just the soloist singing this at first, just that opening theme. And it has to have behind it this, um, I'm in despair, but I'm just going to encourage myself and you to just hold on just a little while longer. Soon, one day, everything will be all right, which is kind of, you know, the idea behind multiple spirituals, you know, whether it's um, especially those that are longing for the escape, longing for the hope, longing for uh, the promised land or the better day or heaven or escape or whatever, something that is not their present disparity. And so there's that edge of hope that's in there that really needs to be drawn out. And so um, the lingering, the laboring in, in that tone, um, I knew that she would really, uh, she grew up with a lot of these types of pieces herself. And so I knew that she would be able to um, portray that instantly to an audience, especially on an, a solo that is really that exposed. Mm -hmm. um, and then the chorus comes in with that big Forza piano home with the OH inside of the home and those sustaining uh, chords um, that need to have some depth behind it. And then kind of, and that whole first page where that repeats, like kind of moves, you're moving basically in a restative kind of style with the soloists following behind there, especially the everything will be all right and moving with them kind of in time, kind of out of time. Um, and then adding the things I did to add on to that, you know, the, um, I took a page out of the Jester Harrison and Moses Hogan book and, and layered in these um, rhythmic figures of going from the bass to the tenor, to the alto, to the soprano two, to the soprano one. Um, after that, with some building chants of the bass doing the hold on, hold, hold on, hold, hold. Of kind of like a, my high school choir used to call those a, a machine, like kind of just this repeating canonic system that that will then support the melody. So everyone layers in with their systems one at a time to just draw out, hold on, hold on. They're using the same text in the, each of those choruses until the alto solace adds on. And then that becomes the refrain that we return to every time. Um, and then the verses, I knew I was going to need, of course, more material for the verses. So the verse text actually was written by my brother, uh, Benjamin Isaiah Black. Um, at the first Harvest Choir performance we did, he wrote and read a poem called Carry Me Jesus. And we used the text from that poem for the verses of this text. So, that, mm. so there's some original material in there that the soloist portrays um, over the chorus. So like the I'm tired of walking down this road. Lord, help me lift this heavy load. And um, I need to finish this path. I need somebody else who would please don't leave my, me by myself. Everything that she's layering in is taken from that poem because I knew that that would fit thematically with all of these ideas of you're getting this constant plea to hold on, like you're praying and pleading that things will get better while still simultaneously having to encourage holding on to the listener. Um, so everything that's going on in there is just working synonymously together until it finally culminates in the ending. Um, everything will be all right. And also took a page from some of these other spirituals and it's, it lands on this big minor chord with the uh, 
soprano descant going up to a high C sharp and coming back down and then a raised six, um, the D sharp in, in the tenor. Cause I just, that one, I just couldn't, <laughs> uh, I couldn't help myself with throwing that in there. Cause that's just one of my favorite things. But uh, yeah, I absolutely loved writing and performing this piece. I remember being so proud of it when I finished and I was like showing it to everybody I knew. <laughs> um, and I got, got to also then perform it later with um, a couple of our groups from Kent state, the, uh, Cora Cantar and Cantique and had one of our um, soloists sing it at the time and just to give them an added education into these spirituals um, and I'm hoping that and I know other people have picked it up since then and performed it some other um, institutions and I'm very very proud of it and I hope that it serves as an example of the added creativity that can happen with works like this as well as the added performance practice that can kind of go along with these, that they don't just have to stay necessarily within the silo of African-American works that are performed. Uh, just because you're not African-American or you may not have that um, demographic in your group predominantly, it, I think as long as you approach these with the right um, understanding of the genre and effort into learning about the um, its background and vocally what you need to do to perform it, just like you would with any Renaissance or Baroque work or something by um, Randall Thompson or any other um, multicultural work. It's, it's something that can be accessible and good for anyone to perform. And on top of that, it adds one of probably the best encouraging messages. Um, I know a lot of people reach out to me and told me they listened to it during um, the heat of the pandemic as we were um, neck deep into disparity as an added encouragement when things were very uncertain, which just delighted me to um, no end because that's one of my, truly one of my goals as a musician and as a writer. So yeah, anyone that wants to perform this, I highly encourage you to uh, check it out and I hope it is a, can be a great encouragement and blessing to you. Okay, well, we are going to listen to this recording of Hold On Just a Little While Longer, uh, part of the performance called In the Spirit, an Encounter with Spirituals, held at Faith Lutheran Church in Akron, Ohio.
Ryan, if my listeners want to learn more about you, what's your website? Where can we find you online? Yeah, my website is brianblackthesecond.com. So that's B-R-Y-O-N-B-L-A-C-K-I-I.com. Just make sure you're typing in Brian and not Byron. I get that mistake quite, <laughs> quite often. But yeah, on my website, you can find a variety of uh, recordings of some of my works with different groups over the course of some years. You can also find sheet music of multiple compositions and arrangements of mine. You'll see a lot of perusals there. And for some pieces, even different resources such as rehearsal tracks and such. Um, there's works in there for mixed courses, um, one for TB and some different ones for church as well. And I plan to continue updating those as time goes on. And you can contact me through that website or even by email at bkblack28 at gmail.com if you're interested. Um, I would love to uh, be able to collaborate with you or to answer any questions or to um, have you check, check out or purchase some of my pieces. Sounds good. And hey, listeners out there, make sure that you also rate and review Movable Dough on whatever platform you're using. If you don't really like writing reviews, then write me a good music joke. If leaving reviews isn't really your thing, then join us over on the Movable Dough listeners group on Facebook and let us know what you think of the show. Brian Black, it has been a pleasure to get to know you today. Thank you for joining me on Movable Dough. Thanks so much for having me, Steve, and thanks everyone for listening. My guest today was composer Brian Black II. If you have a recommendation for a future guest or an idea for the show, please email me at movabledoe at gmail.com. This is Steve Danielson. Keep the music moving.